those of you that have been a part of our church for a while, you know one of the, the principles we live by is we understand God's order and God's system for certain things. We give over 10% of our income away every single month to missions and ministry outside of our church. It's our church tithe. And the first tithe of our tithe, or the first 10% of everything we give away, goes to Jewish evangelism. Because Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is to the Jew first, then to everyone else in the world. And it, it's an order thing. And I love the way Pastor Jeffrey, who you'll hear in a moment, says it. The gospel isn't to the Jew only, it's just to the Jew first is, is God's system and God's order. And he actually wrote a book explaining that in more detail, why we live as a church by that principle with our finances. And it's called God's Blueprint for the Great Commission. It's all on evangelism, and it helps you understand these principles in God's word. I encourage you to pick up a copy if, if, if you want more information on that. And it's just a great book on evangelism, and you'll love his heart as he shares in a few moments. And so we decided as a church that as we invest a percentage of all of our income into Jewish evangelism. And, and if you study the Apostle Paul, Paul was the missionary to non-Jewish people in the Bible. That was Paul's mission throughout the book of Acts is to go to the non-Jewish world and preach the gospel. But if you notice something about Paul's missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts, every single city Paul went to, he always went to the synagogue first. He always preached to the Jew first before he ministered to the rest of of the city, and, and it's an order thing. And so what we've done is we've, we've dedicated a percent of our income, a tithe of everything we give away goes to Jewish evangelism. We do that through Pastor Jeffrey Cohn funding his ministry and the evangelism he is doing all throughout the world. God has gifted him with an ability to share his story with Jewish people. He grew up as an Orthodox Jew and found Jesus as the Messiah. Now, that may not sound a whole lot to you, especially for those of us who grew up in America, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But you got to realize it's, it's, it's harder for that to take place than an atheist to give their life to Christ. I mean, an atheist coming to Christ is, is relatively a very easy thing than, than somebody who is Orthodox Jewish, especially understanding that it was Christians for hundreds of years that, that raped, pillaged, killed, murdered, robbed, abused Jewish people all throughout Europe, and I don't believe they were, they were Christians at heart. I think they were just Christians in name. They were under a religious system, but that was their understanding of Christianity for many, many years. So for uh, an Orthodox Jew to become a Christian, that, that's, a, that's a big deal, and he's got an amazing story that he's going to share with us this morning. It's actually in his book, My Jerusalem Encounter, so if you enjoyed today's message and you want to hear the full version, pick up a copy. I believe they sold out of these in the last service and had to run to the hotel and get another box of them. But it's a great, great story of, of his heart. And it's a great book to buy and give to a Jewish friend. There's many Jewish people who just through reading the book alone found Christ as their Messiah just through reading this book. We made one change this week for our Holy Thursday service, which is our communion service that we do as a church family. Uh, Pastor Jeff's going to be in town, so I've asked him if he'll come on Holy Thursday and teach through the entire Passover ceremony, the Passover Seder, into communion. The night that Jesus had the Lord's Supper with the disciples, he was actually doing the Passover Seder with the disciples. And there's a lot of meaning. They've been doing it for thousands of years ever since they they were delivered out of Egypt, out of the slavery. They instituted this ceremony, and it's been done the same for thousands of years. And he's going to teach through it 
at our Holy Thursday service, the whole Passover ceremony, the Seder, into us receiving communion together as a church family. And so for those of you that like to go deeper into the history and the understanding of it, Thursday night is going to be a great night for us as a church as he teaches through that. So without saying anything else, he's a dear friend of our church. He's somebody that, that we as a church family get to invest in every single month and see what God is doing through his ministry. And I'm glad he's here today to share his story with you. Would you welcome with me Pastor Jeffrey Cohen? Thank you so much. It's just been such a wonderful weekend, really. Uh, I mean, I, I love Texas. We live in Dallas, Texas, but it doesn't t even touch you guys when it comes to beauty. I mean, as, as much as, you know, I don't want to be disloyal, but <laughs> I, I think I want to move here. <laughs> anyway, that's another subject, but oh, it's gorgeous. Uh, my parents actually lived here for, for 20 years, and my mom just moved to upstate New York, and so... Um, I need another reason to come back, so <laughs> I got all of you guys. So uh, anyway, let's just pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you, Father, that Jesus is real and that Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. <laughs> that he's alive and well and sitting at the right hand of God. And Lord, what's so amazing is that your Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. And Lord, that we can talk to you and commune with you every day. And we thank you, Father. Bless this time now in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Well, you know, I, I was just, as, as Pastor Aaron was sharing about this, this truth of, you know, one of the truths in the scriptures, the gospel is to the Jew first, but not to the Jew only. You know, but just because it's God's order, because God is a God of pattern. God is a God of order. And, um, and I was just thinking, just something just really, just really, even when you're talking about atheists coming to the Lord, um, I have some really good friends in Florida, Miami Beach, uh, who are Holocaust survivors, and um, they are either outright atheists or agnostics or, you know, can you imagine, I mean, it's easy for us to judge or, you know what I mean, but imagine if you're like a six-year-old little boy and you see your friends having their heads blown off. I, I know that's, again, not a very cheery thing to talk about, but you see that as a little boy and you start wondering, where is God? You know, and, you know, the, 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 the work of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and, and having the Word of God is such a privilege. It's such a privilege, you know. And, but anyway, what I was thinking, as, as, as Pastor Aaron was sharing, is that the gospel is so powerful that it can stand on its own two feet in any arena. And I just have to say that again. Just think of it. The gospel, it's not like people think, oh, 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 oh you're just a Christian or you just... You just believe in that. The gospel can stand against any argument, against any false religion, against any false philosophy. The gospel can stand on its own two feet. There is nothing more powerful than the gospel message that we believe in. Hallelujah. You give the Lord a hand for that because he's worth it. Many years ago, um, I lived in Richmond, Virginia, and I, I co-hosted a cable television show called Shalom Jerusalem with another Messianic rabbi. And I don't know why, but all the hard questions that they called in, he'd funneled to me. I don't know why, <laughs> just, you know. But every time the hard questions would come, God would just give me wisdom. And you'd think, you know, all the arguments and philosophies of this world and all the educated people and all the brilliant philosophies, 
but that would be intimidating or I wouldn't know what to say. But the, more, the, the greater the opposition, the stronger my faith became. And something I don't talk about much, but I'll, I just feel liberty to talk about it today. Um, after I was a believer for about three and a half years, I went through deep programming in Jerusalem at one of the top yeshivas, Bible schools in Jerusalem. And I, I have a very close relative who's a rabbi. And, and, and I knew sooner or later the enemy was going to use it against me because, because I was raised Orthodox, because I went to Orthodox Jewish school. They all said to me, the reason you believe in Jesus is that you don't know your Judaism strong enough and you don't know the scriptures enough. If you knew Judaism better and you knew all the arguments against the gospel, then you wouldn't believe. And so it was, was always like nagging at me, you know what I mean? The enemy was just using it to kind of try and intimidate me. Oh, if you really went through what some of these other guys went through, you deny the Lord. And so I knew sooner or later I was going to have to face this demon, so to speak, you know, this, this fear of mine. And I ended up uh, at a yeshiva, I won't say the name, but very, very top, very respected yeshiva in Jerusalem. And their goal was to bring me back to, Juda to, to, to Judaism. And I wouldn't recommend anyone do this unless the Holy Spirit's leading you this way. Um, but anyway, um, that was their goal, was to bring me back. And I said to them, if you can prove to me from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is not the Messiah, I'm willing to listen to you. And I went through almost four months of every single possible argument that they had. And then, you know, the, the one rabbi would get frustrated. They'd take me to a higher level rabbi, and then he'd get frustrated with me, and on and on and on. And at the end of that four months, and I've, I've been to Bible school, and I've got a, you know, bachelor's degree in theology and all that. But honestly, that wasn't my training. But going through that apparent deprogramming and coming out at the, I'll tell you what happened at the very end after the four months. And every argument possible from the Hebrew against why they believe this is not talking about Jesus, all these prophecies in the Old Testament. Finally, I faced the chief deprogrammer in Jerusalem. And his claim to fame was that he had, just in the last year, he had caused 21 Jewish believers to deny Jesus and to deny the faith. Can you imagine me going through this as a young believer of only three and a half years? And it was the end of the time, and I finally went to his office, and I sat down, and I looked in his eyes, and I said to him, and I won't mention his name, I just said, Rabbi, I want you to know I've listened to every argument, and I've carefully considered everything that everyone said, and I've looked at all the prophecies in their context and in Hebrew, and I just want you to know, and his face began to lift up because he thought I was going to deny the Lord, you know. I said, I just want you to know that I'm more convinced than ever before that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. And so I, I, the, the reason I share that with you today, I, I just have this boldness in my spirit, is we must not be intimidated by this world. And we need to come with boldness and with confidence and authority that there is no message that can change the world from the inside out like the gospel message that we believe in. Can somebody say amen? Hallelujah. And I love the first half of the verse of what... Um, you, you, we were talking about earlier on, or what Pastor Aaron was talking about. Because the first half of that verse, Romans 1.16, says this. Before it says, the last half, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed. Everybody say, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> and you know, there are some things that we should be ashamed of, but if there's one thing we should not be ashamed of, it's the gospel that has redeemed us. And so don't be intimidated 
I don't know, I just really feel impressed to say this, whether it's a family member, whether it's someone who's, whether it's someone who's opposing you, you know, I mean, I, I went through four months of the most intensive deprogramming, and it strengthened my faith so much, that was my training. That's why I can debate atheists, I can debate rabbis, I can debate, if you, I've even come across, been in a situation on this television program, it was me versus a Muslim imam, and I love the Muslims, and God loves them. But he was directly attacking the word of God and the credibility of the Old Testament. The enemy will always attack the word, but guess what? The word of God is secure, <laughs> and nothing can move it because it's a solid rock. Amen? Hallelujah. Well, I just had to get that off my chest, so <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for it, but um, I really felt that it was just like a prophetic unction that I had to share that. Um, I, I was raised to not believe in Jesus. You know, whether we understand it or not, whether we know it or not, all of us are indoctrinated in one way or another, sometimes good, sometimes bad, you know. And so going to private Jewish schools, Orthodox Jewish schools, being raised in Judaism. Now, the wonderful thing that we do have in common as Jews and Christians, we all believe in the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we got the right God. Hallelujah. It's a great start, you know. The thing we're not yet completely all in agreement in is how to get to him. Okay, we know he's the God of Israel, but how to get to him. And so this main point is that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so he is the bridge to heaven. Not only the bridge to heaven, but he's the bridge to a relationship with the Father. You know? And so I was raised and told, well, no man can be the son of God. God doesn't have a son. That it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to say that he's God. And that's a scary thing, even for a, for, to say, for a man to say that he's God is blasphemy. And you know, when Jewish people tell me that, I say, you know, that's true. I mean, if, if any man came to you and said that he's God, would you say that's blasphemy? <laughs> that's blasphemy. I said, that's not what happened with Jesus. There's a huge difference between a man claiming to be God and God coming in the form of man. Can somebody say amen? <laughs> huge difference, right? And so I say, you're right, but that's not what happened with Jesus, with Yeshua, you know. And so I was raised to not believe in him. I was raised to believe that God can't have a son, that the whole concept of the incarnation is just inconceivable, you know. I was told that even Christians believe in three gods, you know, which, uh, of course, we know is not true because a very simple analogy that God's given me to share with Jewish people is we are soul, we, I'm sorry, we are, we are, we are body, soul and spirit but it doesn't mean that there's three of us you understand we we made up of three components but there's we only one person you know um so anyway all the all the odds were stacked against me believing in jesus i mean completely and totally and um anyway uh we say prayers every morning prayers in hebrew and say the same prayers every day except for the uh, for the head of the month the head of the month not munch <laughs> i guess i must be getting hungry uh I'll have munch after this. The head of the month is called Rosh Chodesh in Hebrew. That's the full moon because we go by the lunar calendar. So the only time the prayers change that we say every morning while we are laying to fill in and call phylacteries um, was, was the full moon. And I thought, well, if I'm getting bored with saying the same prayers every day, surely God must be getting more bored than me because I know he's much more intelligent than me, you know. And, and God was using this. He was really using all of this to to draw me to him, and to make me think about eternal things. Um, anyway, so uh, 
I finished Hebrew school and, uh, you know, high school through Hebrew school. And then uh, I went to university, studied law for a few years. And then I had this big choice because I felt like law wasn't for me and I had no choice but to go into the South African army because it was, it was mandatory. It's a mandatory two years. Um, it was a big dilemma for me because uh, my family had done so much to fight apartheid and that whole system. Uh, but it was the law of the land that you had to go into the army for two years. And I, so I had no choice, either that or prison for three and a half years. And I wasn't too excited about prison for three and a half years. So uh, I decided I'd go into the, you know, I had no choice to do my national service. And during boot camp, how many know whenever there's a racist spirit, there's always anti-Semitism as well, you know. And it's, it's anti-Semitism is racism. I believe a lot of the anti-Israel stuff at the UN is just pure racism in the name of righteousness. I really do. That's another subject, but we won't talk about that right now. Um, and so, you know, um, I had no choice but to go. So during that time, I was given this name. My name became Ewart. Ewart is basically a, a slur for, for Jew. And in my mind, all these people were Christians because they all went mostly to the Dutch Reformed Church, which is mostly the Afrikaners who are the ancestors of the Dutch and the Germans. Uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, or they were Catholic, or Lutheran, or whatever they, w they were. And uh, they would actually march and sing these songs. I, I actually remember the words of the songs, because I, I, they, they sang them so often as they marched. They would sing anti-Semitic songs while they were marching. You know, um, Eventually, the anti-Semitism got so bad that um, I had to call my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm going to leave the country, because I, 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 I literally don't feel safe. I feel like my life is in danger. And my dad, thank God, was a very influential man in South Africa at the time. And I was called into the office of the commandant, and he said, is this true, or everything that's been going on? And I said, yes. And they gathered all the troops together, it was about 800 of them, and told them that constitutionally you can't discriminate against someone because of their religion or their religious belief. And at least became bearable after that. You know, but it was a very, very rough time. And to me, these people were Christians. But in the midst of it all, there was a ray of light, and there was a, um, a Greek Christian, uh, I say Christian loosely because as a Jewish person who doesn't know what a Christian is exactly, they just know it's a Gentile who goes to church, uh, I, you know, he belonged to a cult. For those of you who've studied the cults, um, I don't know if it's still a cult or not, but it was called the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, Herbert Armstrong was the founder. And many years ago, they had a magazine called The Plain Truth. And there were such beautiful magazines, and they were free, that people would take them and read them. And it really should have been called The Plain Lie. <laughs> but of course, you know, cults aren't going to say we are lies, so please come and join us, you know. And so there was some truth, and there was some lies, but more lies than truth. Um, but anyway, what, what was interesting about this guy is they do love the Jewish festivals and seem to love Israel. And I was just shocked to, met, to meet a Christian that didn't hate Jews. I mean, I was genuinely shocked. Remember, this is in South Africa, and these people come from Europe. It's not like in America where most, almost everyone loves Jews. I mean, thank God for America. It's the most pro-Jewish country in the world in history. I mean, it really is, you know. Um, anyway, so this guy, I, I just wanted to be, I was just so happy that somebody liked me. I didn't really care what he told me, <laughs> you know what I mean? But he talked about Jesus so much that finally I was just getting a bit too much for me. And I said, look, you know, I appreciate that you believe all this stuff. It's wonderful. But I'm a Jew, and Jews don't believe in Jesus. So please, enough of all this Jewish, of all this Jesus stuff. I'm sorry. Anyway, 
Then the next thing he does, without even saying anything, he opens up his Bible and he gives it to me. And he says, here, read this. And he opened it up to Psalm 22. And if you've got your Bible, you can read uh, Psalm 22. And it starts off saying in the, in the beginning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the word of my groaning? And then it goes on to say in verse 14, and I put my glasses on so I actually can see what I'm reading, even though I've memorized it pretty well. Um, I am poured out like water in verse 14, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves, cleaves, clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, when I came to this place, it seemed like I was reading about a crucifixion. But when I came to they divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing, immediately I thought, well, this is not just talking about a crucifixion. This is talking about Jesus. You say, how did I know as a Jew? Because I listened to the record, Jesus Christ Superstar. My dad had bought it. It was just kind of a cool, controversial record to have. And it was the only Jesus thing that you could have in a Jewish home, you know, because it was controversial. And for those of you who remember those big records, it was like 45 RPM, kind of looked like a black Frisbee that spins around, you know. And, you know, it had the, had the words to the, to the, to the uh, songs on the inside. And I remembered singing along with it. Fortunately, I only sing alone where nobody can hear me. Um, and I remembered part of the words were about casting lots for his clothes. And I just remembered this. I don't know why, about his robe. And so I got to that point and I said, look, enough. Jews don't believe in the New Testament, so please just don't give me the, the New Testament to read. I just felt really insulted. And he said to me, this is not the New Testament. I said, what do you mean? He said, look, it says Psalm 22, a Psalm of David. Now, can you imagine I was trapped? What could I say? What could I do? God had tricked me. Friends, God will sometimes trick you. <laughs> Jeremiah said, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. He's talking to God, you know. But when God deceives you, it's for, a, for the right reason, right? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying. And I thought I was reading the New Testament, but I was reading the Old Testament. So my, my brain was going crazy. My mind was racing. How do I get out of this one? <laughs> and I said, okay, look, here's the problem. You Christians don't know any Hebrew, and you translated it so it'll look like it's a crucifixion so that a gullible Jew like me going through a hard time will read it and somehow become a Christian by osmosis out of desperation. And it's just not going to work on me, you know. So I thought, what I'm going to do when I go home, I'm going to go to my grandmother because uh, I, I can read and write Hebrew. She's got the Hebrew uh, Tanakh, Old Testament, and I'm going to read the Hebrew and see what it really says. So I went to my grandmother on leave, read the Hebrew, and then I read the rabbi's translation of the Hebrew. And I, I was really shocked because it was very similar to whatever version he gave me. I don't remember what it was, maybe the NIV or the New King James, I don't know. Except for one, one section, what I just read to you, where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, in the original Hebrew, there's no vowels. I've actually seen the original Dead Sea Scrolls. It's incredible. The Qumran Scrolls that they found in Qumran. And among the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, there's Isaiah 53, but there's also Psalm 22. And in the most ancient manuscripts, 
Um, the original word um, is ka'ari, ka'ari. But without the vowels, ka'ari, it can be they pierced or it can be like a lion. It can be either. But if you look at the context, the whole thing appears to be describing a crucifixion. And then the, what the rabbis do, instead of putting they pierced in the Jewish translations, they say, they like a lion, my hands and my feet. So I read that and I thought, what on earth does that mean? Like, how do you like a lion? If someone came up to you and said, I'm going to like a lion, your hands and your feet, you would just think, are you okay? Like, are you on drugs? Or do you, you, know, do you, do you want to sit down? Can I pray for you? You know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, there's no, you know. But if someone said, e even they pierced my hands and my feet is, is probably the best they could have done with the English, but it's really not accurate. If you really look at the original word, especially the, the, the most ancient manuscripts, um, it's much more powerful than they pierced. Because they pierced, I mean, that's, you can get your ear pierced, you know what I mean? It's, it's not very terrifying to say, I'm going to pierce your ear or I'm going to pierce something. In the original language, what it actually means is to gouge or to bore through. I mean, that's, that would be an accurate translation from the Hebrew, to gouge or to bore through, you know. Uh, and if you really think of what happened, a one-foot nail, and they had to gouge or bore through his hands and his feet to get the nail through. Much more accurate, you, you guys agree, you know. So there was the seed in my heart that I believed, without a doubt, Psalm 22 was talking about Jesus, but I didn't know what to do about it. Because this guy that had told me about Jesus was an occult and he was weird, and I didn't want to become weird, you know. And, and you know, like cults teach, well, our, in our truth is the only truth. We are the only true church. We are the only one. And I thought, but this, you are so weird, and I just don't want to be like you, you know. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, I'd rather not have the truth if you are the truth. I mean, I'd just rather not have the truth kind of thing, you know. Um, and so, uh, but I still couldn't get away from this reality of Psalm 22. So... Anyway, fast-forwarding a little bit, I uh, finished up my army service. It was two years. I took up boxing very seriously during that time. In fact, I was offered a professional boxing contract, and my father was absolutely horrified. He said, that's no profession for a nice Jewish boy, you know. But I was able to physically fight, you know, when I, when I needed to, and look like I was winning the battle on the outside, but on the inside, I was so full of hatred but my hatred was for the Afrikaners, who were the oppressors and the enforcers of apartheid. But the hatred that I had for them, even though I thought it was justified, was eating me up. Are you guys following me? Because when you hate, it eats you up. And they weren't bothered, you know. It was me. It was just eating me up. And uh, I just knew I had to leave South Africa. So I ended up um, going to live in Israel for a few months. And then I went to university in America, uh, in New York City. And then I came back to Israel in the summer of 1984. And um, this guy moved into our room. Uh, he was a born-again Christian from Washington, D.C. His name was Frank. In fact, I still remember um, a, a friend tracked him down for me. His father was the vice secretary of the U.S. Navy in 1984. So um, uh, anyway, uh, you know, Frank just said, I believe, he, when, I, when I finally spoke to him, he said, I believe that if there's anybody that would never, ever get saved, it was you. <laughs> I mean, he was like literally shocked. He was absolutely, completely shocked when I called him about 20 years later to tell him that I've been serving God for the longest time. And, uh, but what really 
struck me as he was talking about Jesus in Jerusalem. Well, this happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. That happened to Jesus. And I just thought, in Jerusalem? Like, what was Jesus doing there? I thought he was a Catholic. <laughs> and as funny as that is, I really, I had no clue there was any Jewish connection with Jesus. You know, because what did I see? You know, I'd see a church with stained glass, you know, the stained glass windows. And this really austere looking guy, you know, sort of with a strange colored face, you know. And, and then like a, like a golden sort of plate on his head. I don't know what that was, you know. And Jews don't wear golden plates on their heads, so I just thought it definitely couldn't be Jewish. And then pr- possibly the most famous painting of all time, The Last Supper, by Leonardo da Vinci, where Jesus and all the disciples, they all look Swedish, all of them, you know. <laughs> and then the only one who looks Jewish is Judas, thanks so much, Leonardo da Vinci, you know. <laughs> Got a huge nose and beady eyes, you know. So why would I think, you know? And I mean, it looks like a European table with like just beautifully laid with like knives and forks and, you know. So, so here I am with my, my best friend at the time, rugby playing buddy, wrestling buddy, drinking buddy, and we're walking towards the old city of Jerusalem, towards Jaffa Gate, and I start having this thought. And I'm thinking, this is not the city of David. This is the city of Jesus. And why would I think that as a Jew? I mean, it's like crazy thinking, you know. So I'm thinking this, this is the city of, of Jesus. And I, now I know it's the Holy Spirit, but I didn't know there even was such a thing as the Holy Spirit back then. He's not really a big part of Jewish theology, modern Jewish theology. So I walk through the gate with my friend, turn to the left to go to the Arab market, for, the, for those of you who know that area. And, and as God is my witness, I mean, just as real as Pastor Aaron sitting on the front row, all of a sudden, I mean, there was nobody there, and there is Jesus standing about 10 feet in front of me, completely out of the blue. He just appears to me dressed like he was when he was here on this earth. Now, that's a pretty shocking thing to happen <laughs> to anybody, wherever you are, whether you're in Jerusalem or somewhere else. And immediately I turned to my friend, and I was about to say, hey, look, look, Mark, there's Jesus. I realized he wasn't seeing Jesus, and neither was anybody else. And there's three things that I immediately knew. The first thing I thought is, wow, he looks so Jewish. <laughs> I mean, I was literally shocked because he looked like an, like an Israeli, like a Sabra. You know, Sabra is someone who's born in Israel, uh, a Jew born in Israel. And he literally was a, was a Sabra, was born in Israel, you know. Um, he had sort of more, more like darker skin than me, like more olive, you know, black hair, most incredible dark eyes. Um, but it doesn't really matter what he looked like physically because a lot of people ask, you know. Really, in the natural, the Bible says he, there was, he had n- nothing amazing that we'd look at. And I'm paraphrasing what it's saying. He just looked like an ordinary Jew, pretty much. But here's the thing. I immediately knew that this was more than a man. I didn't understand the theology of, about the word becoming flesh and the incarnation and all these fancy theological terms we understand. But I just immediately knew that this person looking at me was more than a man, immediately. Third thing I knew is that he knew every sin that I'd ever committed, everything I'd ever done, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and yet he loved me with a perfect and unconditional love. I've never felt such incredible love, and I had his full, undivided attention. I mean, if we're really honest, isn't that really what we want? We want someone to love us, and someone to give us their full, undivided attention. I mean, how do you feel when you're talking to someone and they keep on glancing over your shoulder? Like, I just wish you'd finish. I mean, there's nothing more 
sort of belittling. I mean, you, you just feel like you want, the, you want the ground to open up and you want it to disappear. Either that or just punch him out completely, you know. <laughs> just get it over with, you know. But to have his full undivided attention looking at you in the eyes and make you feel so special like you're the only person in the whole world that matters. And that's how God looks at every single one of us. And I'm having this incredible experience, and then I heard the words, he made me, which means here am I in Hebrew. And I knew exactly what he was saying. I am the one that you've been looking for, even if you didn't know it. I am the answer. I'm the one who will fulfill you that you can't fill with anything else or anybody else. And I've never felt such peace and so fulfilled in my life. And this beautiful experience and this love, and then he disappears. It's gone. And then you can imagine how shocked I was that he disappeared. I mean, he's appeared, and that's shocking, but it's amazing. And then he disappears, and I'm looking everywhere for him, and he reappeared about 10 feet to the right again, looking at me again, like I'm the only person on this planet, giving me his undivided attention. And I just feel this love and this warmth, and it's like rivers of living water flowing out of his eyes to me. And then again he disappears. And now, I love the appearances, but the disappearances are getting quite stressful, you know. I mean, you understand, I, I don't know, I'm a Jew. What do I know about receiving Jesus into your heart and having a relationship with God? I, I just think, well, this is how you have a relationship. He appears to you, and you look at him, and you talk to him. And I'm beginning to get a little bit spoiled by this whole thing, you know. But he keeps on disappearing. So I'm looking for everywhere for him. And then I saw him, again, for those of you who've been into the old city near Jaffa Gate, you have the, the shuk or the Arab market on your left, and you have Christ Church there, and then to the right you have the citadel or Tower of David, and then you've got a very tall, high wall, about 30 feet high, with parapets, you know, to defend the city, and uh, about a 15-foot walkway on the top. And so Jesus was walking along the walkway, but this, this time he's walking to my right like this, looking straight ahead of him, and this time it's like I don't even exist. He's not looking at me at all. He's very intentional walking along the wall of the city. <coughs> now, you know, I'm getting used to this attention, and now he's not looking at me at all, and I just wanted to cry out, hey, Jesus, hey, hey, I'm here. Remember, you know, like you just saw me like a few seconds ago, like I'm here now, you know. And, but I knew my friend would think I was crazy, and I realized nobody else was seeing me. And so I just thought in my heart, I just thought, there's a thought, how I wish he would look at me just one more time. And as God is my witness, just as, just as real as like Pastor Ernest being in that front row, he turned, looked me straight in the eyes, and he didn't speak with his mouth, but with his eyes he spoke to me and said, when you had that thought that you wished that I'd look at you one more time, that was a prayer to me, and I'm answering that prayer. He made direct eye contact, and then he was gone. And then uh, there I was left standing with my buddy, rugby playing lock, if you know what a lock is, that position, huge guy, you know, and I'm not going to tell him that I've seen Jesus. You can imagine what he would think. He would think I've got a hangover or something, you know. But I hadn't drunk the night before, so. Um, here I'm left with this knowledge, this experience, this revelation. And I was too scared to tell anybody. I thought, people, I, thought I was the only person in the world that ever had this experience. What am I going to go and tell my mom I've just seen Jesus? I mean, what am I going to say, you know? And you know, the Bible says something really, really interesting. Remember, I believed in Jesus already. But the Bible says something very interesting. It says, 
it's, I mean, it's good to believe. It's definitely, definitely, don't get me wrong, it's good to believe. But the Bible says it's not enough to believe. Because the Bible says in John, in the book of John, to as many as received him, everybody say received. To them, to them, he gave, he gave the power to become, to become, everyone say to become, the sons of God. And this incredible thing happens when you believe and then you receive, you become a son and a daughter of God. He adopts you forever and ever. And the wonderful thing about when God adopts you, it's forever. <laughs> you are his child forever. So right now, if you don't mind, every head bowed and every eye closed. And I'm not going to embarrass you or anything like that. This is between you and God. But if you want this assurance of the reality of Jesus in your life, and to have the assurance of your salvation that, that you have no, will have no doubt at all that if you were to die today that you're going to be in God's presence. If you want that assurance to know this Jesus, I want you just to put up your hand right where you're sitting, and I'm going to pray. We're going to all pray a prayer together. Just put up your hand if that's you. God bless 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 you. Many hands going up. This is so exciting. Praise the Lord. Okay, put your hands down. Now, we're going to pray together this very, very simple prayer. We're going to pray it out loud. Just say this. Say, Father, I thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you love me and that you died for me. I receive you into my heart and into my life. In Jesus' name, save me and change me. And forgive me in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. Do you let Jeff know how much we appreciate him? I'm telling you, that story is so remarkable. One of the things he didn't share in this service that he shared earlier that, that really to help put it in context for you. He grew up listening to his grandfather tell stories. His grandfather escaped the Eastern European pogroms. And what a lot of us here in America don't realize is it was in the name of Christianity that they were raided. So every Easter, the, the Christian priest in the area would preach sermons against the Jews for killing Jesus and how we've got to take revenge. And then after church, they would march through the street with the Russian soldiers going into the Jewish areas and killing and raping and burning and, and everything you can imagine. That was their idea of Christianity. It was the Christians who sold their family to the Nazis. All of Jeff's relatives that did not get out of Eastern Europe to South Africa were all killed by the Nazis. Betrayed by Christians, Christian neighbors. And so... For someone, you know, America is different, but outside of America, for someone to find Christ that way is so dramatic and so real. That God has really given him a gift of sharing his story with people. And, and we're so grateful that you came and shared your story with us today. Powerful. You know, so what we talked about last week is being a witness. You are the greatest expert on you. There, there's no one that will ever be a greater authority on the subject of you than you. That's why you are perfectly qualified to be a witness and share.